Hi, and welcome back to Sharp Scratch. You're listening to episode 71. The clinical guideline will see you now. This is a podcast brought to you by the BMJ and sponsored by Medical Protection, where medical students, junior doctors, and expert guests come together and discuss all the things you need to know to be a good doctor, but that you might not get to a medical school. I'm Pat, I'm the editorial scholar here at the BMJ, and I'm also a medical student at Anglia Ruskin University. Today, I'm very glad to be joined by our friends Anna and Andrew. Anna, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, of course. As ever, delighted to be here. Um, I'm Anna and I am an FY1 doctor currently based in Carlisle in the northwest of England. Cool, nice to have you back with us. And Andrew, I believe this is your first episode in this season. Uh, Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, I know it's been a while. Um, Yeah, my name's Andrew. I'm a final year um, medical student at the um, Scott Gem program up in Scotland so it's with the University of Dundee and the University of St Andrews so yeah glad to, to be back it's been a while yeah always um, nice to have you back with us and I'm also delighted to introduce our expert guest today Liam Loftus Liam would you like to introduce yourself of course hello everyone so I'm Liam Loftus I'm a junior doctor I'm a GP trainee and, and I'm here today because I've done some work with the Personalised Care Institute around shared decision making and personalised care from a junior doctor perspective thanks for having me cool thank you for joining us today As we approach the exam season, one of the many things that occupy our revision agenda are guidelines. These guidelines address our written and clinical exams, making sure our proposed management and investigations adhere to the guidelines that are informed by research. But are these guidelines realistic for the heterogeneous population of patients that we look after? I thought in this episode we can explore a bit about what guidelines mean in practice, when and how do we deviate from them when your clinical acumen is telling you that guidelines may not be the best fit. And just before we start, I thought I'd give you a quick quiz um, on guidelines. So NICE, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, produces evidence-based guidelines for healthcare practitioners to follow in practice. Do you know how many guidelines does NICE have at the moment? Just a wild guess. Um, 300. Definitely, they've definitely got a few. Um, I'm going to say 200. That is a very good question, Pat. I'm going for 450. Oh, wow. Yeah, these are really good guesses. And yeah, Andrew, you're the closest one. So there are about 216 NICE guidelines at the moment um, setting out um, guidances for care and services most suitable for people with a specific condition or need. You know, and and I thought in addition with these 216 NICE guidelines, there are also other guidelines like, you know, by the Royal Colleges or just local hospital guidelines. There are just so many. And I think when, well, I guess, especially when I'm revising, which one do we follow? Yeah, so Andrew and Anna, what are your experiences with guidelines? Um, It's interesting you mentioned about NICE because I was just talking to my partner about um, doing this podcast about guidelines and he said it should be called Naughty or NICE because of the nice guidelines i was like that's that's quite um that's quite good actually he's not medical so i'm surprised he even knows about the nice guidelines that just shows you how sort of pervasive i guess they are i think my perspective on guidelines has changed a bit since i've started practicing as a junior doctor and i'm sure that anyone who has made that transition would definitely resonate with the experience of like enacting guidelines in practice being quite different to learning them for an exam I mean, I know that my med school did often sort of revert back to the NICE guidelines rather than local guidelines or like society guidelines. And in some ways that was really useful because you knew exactly what you were looking for. And I do think that the the NICE guidelines are laid out well on their website if you're 
intention is to learn them for an exam they're a really really good resource and um if you're a massive geek like me and you can click through into all of the evidence and things like that then it's it's amazing but I think things do get a bit more difficult when you're faced with a patient that you're not entirely sure about and I mean something that comes to mind is we have some local chest pain guidelines here and you know you go down to A&E and you see your patient with chest pain and one of the I think one of the things is um convincing cardiac chest pain is a phrase that's used on the chest pain guidelines and I'm like I'm not really sure like what does that actually mean you know um and maybe I just think too much into it but also often you think about um you know what like we discussed before on the podcast part about like the gender health gap and is is what I consider to be convincing cardiac chest pain the same as what you might consider to be convincing cardiac chest pain so I think it's a bit more complicated um, in practice, as these things often are. Um, but yeah, Andrew, it'd be interesting to hear your perspective, because you used to be a pharmacist, right? So you probably use lots of guidelines in pharmacy too. Yeah, so like um, probably when I most, uh, I was going to say when I most got into guidelines, but it sounds like you're know, a bit weird. But when I was doing my pre-reg year, like quite a lot of the time you're, you're checking things like antibiotics and you're trying to check things that are most... Um, commonly used with guidelines and antibiotics probably the easiest one to, to pick and you are generally checking you know, are these adhering to guidelines you are these you know following something that seems sensible for what the patient's in with so that was probably like my first proper exposure that, um, that, you, that you really start to kind of follow them or, or at least check them but then kind of going back to doing medicine has been quite interesting you know about that sort of focus of like trying to learn guidelines or trying to memorize you know what, what's actually in them and you know, I had a lot of people obviously asking me uh, on the course and things you know, about you know, um, trying to memorise you know antibiotic guidelines for for certain and types of infection, and sort of kind of having that opinion of well you know, you can learn them and uh, like it might maybe be helpful for an exam but probably most likely it's more important to to know what the antibiotic is rather than learning a guideline because in real life like I think you would be a bit uh, gung ho to just guess an antibiotic mm. for for what somebody's in with you you sh- really should be following the guidelines well that's why that's why they're in place it's to try and cut out people going a bit maverick uh, uh and and doing their own thing um so it's kind of they kind of fall into a sort of weird position where they're kind of super emphasized that you learn them but then in real life you you you, you almost shouldn't learn them you should always be sort of checking with them too um so i think they kind of fall into a sort of weird area that kind of like maybe what you're referring to where that your maybe perspective on them changes when you transition from like student to to doctor actually enacting them mm. um and you do kind so, of think so, yeah, like the point of these guidelines existing is so that i don't have to remember this stuff right and then mm. i'm like okay yeah. well i'll just learn it all for this exam yeah it like doesn't it does like it's kind of it kind of clashes with, with the with the point of them it's it's bizarre yeah yeah for sure um i think they're useful there um I suppose uh, one function of them is to kind of standardize ma- and making sure that everyone kind of follow the same protocol when you see yeah. a patient that fits a certain pattern. And Liam, um, you've got more experience in clinical practice. Um, yeah, what do you think about guidelines? And I suppose that what do you think the role of c- clinical guidelines are and what does it mean in practice? Yeah, I think that's a really, really good question. Um, so I think it's almost twofold for me. So first of all, uh, particularly at the medical student stage, I found guidelines really, really helpful. That was somewhere where treatment pathways and protocols were laid out where I could learn them. And I knew they were evidence-based and generally accepted rec- recommendations. Um, 
and that is something I could learn for exams, but also really think about how that applies to clinical care. And there was almost at a stage during my medical school training when I was like, if I know and I can recall and recite or at least find all of the relevant guidelines, I would be an excellent doctor. And then what happened for me was I, I got through medical school, I went into practice and I saw very quickly that what a guideline looks like on paper and then how it's applied in practice can sometimes be very similar, but can often be very different too. So that the second element of that, and I think where some of the real skill of being a doctor comes in, is taking that evidence-based guidelines and then really thinking about how that applies to the whole person that's in front of you, their current circumstances, um, what's happening beyond their health that might influence um, whether it's, it's right or wrong to, to follow that guidance. But it's almost like the guidance is there um, to give you that evidence basis. And then you really take that and apply it and work with the patient in front of you to come up with a shared decision about where you go next. Yeah, so when you say you can see the patient in front of you and kind of make that adjustment, uh, kind of adapt the guideline a bit to kind of personalise the guideline a bit to the patient. Um, you know, when, when do you just... When do you decide that you have, um, I suppose, enough experience to make that call? Um, what makes you confident enough to deviate from that guideline? I think one of the things underpinning that is um, something that I find and speaking to colleagues, they find too. Particularly when we're relatively junior in your career, it can, find, it can be quite uncomfortable deviating from guidance. And I have a few examples that we can maybe touch upon where um, I felt that discomfort. It almost feels like there's a there's a guidance that's laid out in front of you that's evidence based, and you should start at the top recommendation and then offer that to the patient, and they accept that, and you go ahead with it, and then if that doesn't work, you work your way down the guidance. But there are some really really good examples for for reasons where that are beyond the evidence based recommendations that it's simply not the right thing to do for the patient in front of you. And that's where this concept of shared decision-making comes in. Yes, it feels uncomfortable, particularly the first time, the first couple of times you start thinking about this. And for me, at my stage of the career, sort of five years post-medical school, that discomfort hasn't gone away at all. Um, it's important that... Um, you have a good understanding of the guidance and then really sort of thinking about how you apply that to the person in front of you and reach that shared decision making. I think I really resonate with that um, that feeling of discomfort where you're looking at the guidelines and obviously I'm much more junior than you, um, Liam, so I probably have that discomfort a lot more. Um, and I think you do kind of, in in many ways as well, you feel quite protected by that guidance because you think, okay, if I can document and obviously this is, you know, maybe this is a, a flaw in the way that we practice medicine. It's not really a conversation for now. But you think, you know, I have this patient who fits this criteria. If I document that I've followed this guidelines, then I know that I'm protected because my care of that patient has been the top quality. But actually, as you say, in many in many contexts, that might not necessarily be the right decision, um, even though it looks like it is the right decision on paper. And I think the other thing I've often struggled with um, in terms of following guidelines in my clinical practice is when people don't quite fit the guidelines or don't quite fit the criteria for 
you know, receiving X treatment or, um, you know, I'm sure in, in GP Liam, you have lots of people who maybe don't quite fit that criteria for that two week weight referral or, or, um, you know, whatever it is, but you do kind of think, but I, I think something's going on here. And I did see quite a nice example of that. And I can't, can't remember what it was, but I think it was a two week wait form where there was a, a tick boxes that you could tick down the side about certain symptoms that would flag up a two week wait. But there was also a box that just said high clinician suspicion of something going on. And I just thought that was really nice because it gave you that freedom to say like, I don't know exactly why it is, but something is telling me that this story is not adding up. Um, But yeah, definitely, especially like as an F1, you know, you don't deviate from those guidelines unless you've got express permission from someone senior. Even if you, you know, you can have that conversation with someone, you can say, look, I don't think this is appropriate because of X conversation that I've had with the patient or X conversation that I've had with, with relatives because often as an F1, you are the person having those conversations. You know, you go and take bloods and they tell you something that they haven't told anyone else, even though they've been in hospital for a month. You know, it's totally appropriate to have those conversations, I think, with your seniors. But ultimately, as a very junior doctor, like, I would say that's not something that I would often be comfortable doing, like deviating from guidelines. And I don't know, that's probably inappropriate. I like to think that's an appropriate way to respond to them. I know, maybe just to build on that, I, I think that's a really good point. I think there's... There's very rarely a scenario where you it's the right thing to do to deviate wildly from guidelines and go sort of completely off piece. The, the guidelines are very much there as a re, for a reason, and it's about tailoring those guidance to to the person in front of you. But secondly, something I'm trying to unpick this anxiety associated with it and how might we get over that as clinicians. And I think you've hit the nail on the head there when it comes to getting some senior support. Um, I know, and I still do this regularly um, when I'm in clinical practice, whenever I, th- I see a patient where I think actually that the right thing that I think and the patient thinks in this situation is to, to deviate slightly from the guidance here. Yes, it feels uncomfortable to me, but that anxiety is often relieved by talking it through with a colleague, particularly somebody who's more senior than you. So that's something I found particularly helpful in my experience. It's quite interesting. Um, I remember back in the early years of my course, we it was, we'd had a day of full of lectures where it was just back to back, and just for whatever reason, um, like quite a lot of them were from sort of uh, consultants who were sort of you know obviously telling us about different diseases but quite often they uh, end their presentations with you know some talk about guidelines or like these are the treatment pathways for 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 things like that to sort of sort of tie their talk up which is you know um um quite normal but i remember having a chat with one of the one of the people in my course who had done a a ph a science phd um in sort of physics and you know he's obviously you know spent a lot of time you know thinking about the you know the wonders of the world and the the universe and the, the quantum realms and all that type of stuff and uh, he um, he was a bit quite disillusioned after it. and I remember him saying to me you know, I, I didn't really you know apply to be you know, a kind of walking talking you know, guideline flowchart guy you know, I, I felt like there was more to medicine than than this and this isn't really what I um, signed up for he says you know, all those lectures he says the you know the diseases are interesting but he says I remember being in 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 you know university or doing his PhD and you know there was always an element of sort of wonder or like sort of like you know something 
that was you know just really quite amazing that you could you would learn about and and all the talk about flowcharts and uh, guidelines sort of really sort of gave him a bit of a fright into, is this what I'm getting into type thing I think that was just that was a very short blip and you know, he's, he's more than happy just now <laughs> from the last time I spoke to him but I just remember thinking that was quite interesting like an interesting perspective that you know, we do get so kind of focused on them sometimes that and and uh, yeah I think when you're uh, early uh, in your career it is right to kind of rely on them but then I suppose it's that that emphasis that you know, as you get more experienced and you do become a bit more comfortable and you've just seen much more patience and, and uh, become more kind of expert in, in your craft that you do have that bit of that's 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 partly why you're you're paid more and you have more responsibilities to make those calls when when things don't fit the mm-hmm. um, the exact uh, kind of general criteria yeah it's really interesting you say that actually Andrew because um this is something that I was reflecting on a bit um was I think part of the reason why I was interested in surgery um, rather than medical specialties was because in medical specialties, I saw people doing a lot of, you know, printing out the guide. And this is totally appropriate care. Like I'm not saying this isn't appropriate mm. care. You know, they print out the guidelines. They make sure that everything's prescribed as per the guidelines, um, you know, and that's that's great. And that has been really, really useful for me. I mean, I've been working on the acute medical unit, so I use guidelines every day and I think they're amazing. This is not to knock the guidelines. But then I saw people, you know, when you're operating, if something goes wrong, there's not necessarily a protocol that you follow to like, I don't know, anastomose that artery that you've accidentally cut open. Um, It's more just like kind of thinking on your feet and like drawing on your experience and stuff. And I think that that was what appealed to me about surgery over medical specialties was that there was that there was I felt and I don't know whether this is true because obviously I haven't worked as a surgeon, um, but that there was less kind of protocol um, and more. I don't know. Freedom's probably the wrong word to because obviously this is not me saying that everyone's just going around doing whatever they want. But yeah, there just seemed to be more of an element of like quick thinking, like sort things yeah. out with my hands. Um, but yeah, I don't know. That's uh, that's probably just me. No, because I suppose you're right in that element of you. Know, I suppose pre-surgery and post-surgery, everything's probably quite uh, protocol-driven, and there's it's very regimented. And then, but then once you open that patient up, you you don't really you, you might not know exactly what's going to be in front of you, and like you said. You have to sort of. You know, the only really thing you can do is is rely on your skills and your training, and, and there's a, probably an element of improv- improvisation to surgery that that is yeah probably what appeals to a lot of people. The thing that, that was sort of standing out for me there is the sort of age old question: is is medicine a science or is it an art? And I think mm. that as time has progressed, I think it's probably reasonable to say that we are becoming sort of, there are more guidelines out there and as a result, people are being more driven by these guidelines. But then it's about taking those guidelines and applying that art, which is the the applying it to the person in front of you. It almost comes back to, to what is our role then as a doctor and the role that medical students are training to be. And I think I personally see this, uh, the role of the doctor is to be the person who's, incredibly well-informed about the evidence um, that sits behind the the options that you're offering to a patient and also being someone who can communicate those 
options really effectively um, to the patient in front of you to the point where they get a really good understanding about what lies ahead. And then the skill that follows that from a doctor is, okay, really listening to that patient and how does the options that you've presented them how does it fit with their preferences, with their with their goals, with their beliefs, for example, and really sort of working together that the art side of, of medicine um, to come up with a plan for moving forward that's really right for that patient? Yeah, I totally agree. And I think um, I am quite interested in medical education as well. So that's something that um, I kind of do around, um, like working as a junior doctor and I've seen before the doctor described as the expert gatekeeper, um, which I don't really like that as a term. Um, so I I think I conceptualise it more as the doctor as the expert conduit, um, which I think encompasses a lot more the exactly what you're saying. You know, we're not just a barrier between a patient and getting the care that they need. We are there to provide appropriate holistic options to people um and exactly as you say listen i I read a fantastic article um about ai in medicine um you know saying that uh, you know the doc the role of the doctor will never go extinct because people don't want to be told that they've got cancer by a robot so you know the, the guidelines exist to support you to treat your patients in an evidence-based way but they don't tell you how to navigate the patient experience which is a lot of I think what the expertise of the doctor is in practice um but that's all built on competence right there's fantastic paper that won um the ASME gold medal a couple of years ago about patient experiences of um being cared of, of feeling cared for and something really that I found really interesting about that paper which I can send to you Pat you can link it in the um show notes um was that there was all of these really interesting um experiences that patients talked about about when they felt really well cared for but all of that was underlined by an assumption of competence because without the competence you have nothing to build on because patients patients see competence as like the bare minimum right and that's like part of what guidelines are because you can show a patient a guideline and say this is the evidence that we have that's been synthesized for the condition that you have and this is what they suggest and that's part of your your competence and knowledge as a doctor right which underlines all of the other communication skills that you might use in order to make someone feel cared for yeah i remember um uh, it was early in first year talking about how the patient feels cared for um, I think you were talking about guidelines and uh, and that type of thing, and I think there's always sometimes you meet like a senior colleague who sort of does remind you that there's there is an art to to the medicine, um, and it's just because of their like their competence that there is is so high that they they almost are able to sort of show their craft a lot a lot more effectively. I remember being in a GP practice with a, one of the partners, and a, a guy came in. Uh, long story short, with a chest infection, and he prescribed antibiotics. But um, I remember when the patient and the patient's wife left, the uh, the GP sort of said, "So, so what did I do there?" And I was like, "Well, you know, you examined them and gave them antibiotics." And he says, "Yeah, no, but he's like, how did I get there?" And and you know, he was saying, "You know, uh, 
I, I kind of stood at the door and I watched the patient walk up the corridor. You know, they were sort of shuffling. You know, they looked tired. They were out of breath by the time they got to my door. I shook their hand. You know, I felt that their their hands were kind of warm and clammy, and they didn't. It wasn't really that strong a grip. But I mean, you know, I'm checking his capillary refill when I'm squeezing his hand. He says, you know, his wife's here. He never brings his wife. You know, she's probably worried about him. You know, he never comes to the GP. And, you know, he's sitting down and he's wheezing and he looks awful and he looks clammy. And almost before I've even spoken to the patient, I'm pretty sure he's going to need antibiotics just based on all those things. And you kind of go, oh, man, you know, there's an act to this medicine, you know, thing that, you know, you, you kind of, you do get taught, but you don't. You, you almost have to sort of learn it as you as you just accumulate experience. Mm. And uh, I think there's people like that that always remind you that, you know, yeah, that, 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 and and everything he did, you'll know, fit fit with a guideline. You know, he gave the right antibiotic and and that type of thing. But but almost the way he went about it was just not really anything to do with guidelines at the same time. You know, I think that, I always find it really interesting. You'll meet people like that. You know, it'll be the same as like the way a surgeon will kind of uh, examine somebody's abdomen. You know, they do it in such a way that that you you can't really teach. It. You just have to accumulate over the years. And yeah, I think there's always people like that that remind you that there's. There is an art um, uh, to it as well, and and it ends up with patients feeling really cared for because, mm. um, but yeah, just the way that, that people show it. Yeah, no, I think that that's an excellent point, Andrew, an, an excellent story that really epitomises a lot of what we do, either consciously or subconsciously within general practice. And just to pick up on one of your points, you talked about all of this sort of coming with experience and the, the more experience you get, the more the more comfortable it feels. And I, I think that that's a very fair point. I think that's even reflected in, in the way that we're trained, certainly after medical school. So I look at what's expected of me as a GP trainee and I look at my portfolio and it says in the column that says sort of needs further development, if you're doing this, you need to work harder. It talks about guidelines and it talks about Someone who needs further development is a doctor who rigidly sticks to guidelines that are in front of them. But then as sort of training progresses and you look at the the columns on the far right hand side of the page, the, the excellent junior doctors in that column, it describes very well about people who no longer rely on rules or protocols, but instead is able to to take those protocols and use some discretionary judgment about what's best for that patient in front of them. So I think there's almost an expectation there within training that as you improve and as you become more experienced, you are able to look beyond the guidelines and bring in a bit more of this whole person-centred care that I think we've we've just been touching upon. Yeah, and Andrew, I really like this story because it sounds like the GP's got his own kind of personal style of um, taking on the guidelines. So I thought that was really interesting and very creative as well. We'll talk a bit more about clinical guidelines, but they'll be right after this. Indemnity. You've probably not given it much thought, but it won't be long until the risk of claims and patient complaints becomes all too real. Whatever lies ahead, you need experts in your corner who offer indemnity and a whole lot more. That's why it pays to be with Medical Protection. There's our free membership during your medical school years, our wealth of training resources to help you become the best doctor you can be, and our international experience that protects you during your elective, no matter how far from home you end up. In fact, there are many reasons why our members worldwide trust us to support and protect them throughout their careers. And if you're looking for one more, every week one lucky new joiner wins £183. 
That's the average student weekly spend. Just join for free and you're automatically entered into the draw. That's why UK medical students choose to be part of medical protection. You can't blame them, so why not join them? Visit medicalprotection.org to find out more. And I think you then you do also have the the opposite side of that, where, for instance, conditions are so rare that they aren't captured effectively by certain guidelines or they're in perhaps, you know, they don't quite flag up. I mean, I'm thinking about a case I read recently about a young woman with ovarian cancer who didn't flag any of those um, symptoms to be referred on a two week wait on her initial appointment, but obviously did end up having a malignancy that that turned out to be quite serious and I think you do hear a lot of stories like that I mean I think the media probably latches onto those stories um so it's probably an unfair representation of what you see in the news um but you do kind of think that like there's there's that other side as well like people who aren't necessarily captured by the guidelines but do end up being unwell and again that just comes back to what I think what the real thread of this conversation has been which is that the guidelines are not there to replace your clinical judgment they're there to support your clinical judgment it's very interesting but definitely as like a very junior doctor you're like I'm so scared to deviate from the guidelines in case I get in trouble I remember just uh, recently on the ward that I'm on a neurology ward and quite often people will come in for infusions and for a lot of the infusions you you know, sometimes give some medications with it or you give some just-in-case medications in case people have kind of an allergic reaction. And, uh, you know, you get so used to prescribing them, you know, for everyone who comes in because that's what you do. But you actually sometimes forget that you will actually need to use them. And, uh, you know, the guidelines are very brief about, you know, use these in case someone has a reaction. But uh, this happened recently where somebody had a sort of, you know, kind of mild to moderate reaction. But the, the junior doctor was like, I don't actually know, like, which of these I should use? Because some of them are like quite, you know, potent IV steroids. You go, do, do I use this for like a mild one? Do, do I not? You know, and you, you you find yourself following a guideline that sort of leaves you like in a bit of limbo. And and mm. actually, the the kind of the whole reason for the guidelines is that you're not left in limbo, trying to think what steroid do I give and when do I give it. But the way that they were laid out, you know, it kind of left the junior doctor in a bit of a position of you. Know, I have a decision to make, a clinical one, but I, I almost feel like I've been so reliant on these. And also the fact that the reactions are probably quite rare, so it rarely happens that that they that they didn't feel that they knew or they were comfortable making that decision about what to give. Um, and then it turns out that actually there was a separate guideline for if there was a reaction and the different stages of those reactions, the different things you give. And it was actually on the wall in the doctor's uh, alcove. But because there's so many guidelines on the wall, you almost get guideline blindness where you, you kind of stop looking at everything on the wall because... There's so much stuff there that you, you, you kind of can't take it all in and it could be 10 years old, you know, because everything gets left on the walls and nothing gets taken down. So I just thought it was quite interesting how, you know, somebody's put all the effort into making these, you know, one, a guideline document for junior doctors to follow to, to make sure all the things they might need are prescribed for everybody to, to, kind of, to make sure they're not left in that position. But then that document doesn't tell you how to actually, like, enact those those things you've done for just in case, uh a reaction happens and then the one for that is separate on a wall and you know it's been there for so long that you almost never notice it again you know it's just quite interesting how they all um come together and people have spent money and time making them and then it's almost the Mm. way that they're sort of put together or or, um enacted is like maybe just not 
it's it's not been done by a junior doctor if that makes sense and and how you apply them is quite quite can be quite difficult especially yeah. when you're an fy1 or something yeah like i guess that. we've spoken a lot about maybe more the philosophy of guidelines rather than like yeah. the geography of guidelines yeah and things locally differ as well i think like i mean as andrew was talking about earlier antimicrobial guidelines are probably one of the things that springs to mind but also you know i think a lot of what we have in the ward that i work at is like social issues and where do we send people if they've come from a care home but they've only been admitted for 12 hours and now the care home hasn't got a bed and what's the guideline for this um and obviously all of those things are going to be totally locally mediated so it's not that there's not guidelines for like like there are still guidelines for a lot of those situations but they're going to differ from place to place because of the different organizations that that work yeah within because I don't think I realized like before I became a doctor that the NHS actually interfaces with so many private and like third sector organizations to provide care so that's like another area where a lot of things takes it takes like a bit of lateral thinking I think um and often for some reason like as doctors we we're like have to be involved in these decisions even though I'm like I have no idea what's so like I've never worked with a social worker before um I don't know how to repatriate someone to a different hospital because they're not from here um but you have to kind of like work all this out um by yourself so yes yeah, it's, it's it's really interesting being a doctor's great <laughs> I, I would completely agree, Anna, and I think there's there's something underpinning that as well, which is okay. We've got we've got the guideline in front of us, but how does that guideline relate to the per- the circumstances that the person finds themselves in? So I'll, mm. I always remember a, a patient I had, gentleman in his fifties, sixties, who was he'd had some routine blood tests that had been repeated and showed that actually he had a, a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, um, very sort of um, HbA1c just above the cutoff. And I had that first consultation with him and he was like, I'm absolutely keen to avoid medicine, um, medication specifically, I want to try some lifestyle measures. So I was like, okay, great, we can make this fit within the guidelines. Um, I'll see you again in three months, see how we get on. And sadly, his three months later, when he came back, had the repeat test, things had deteriorated. Um, not significantly, his HbA1c was still there or thereabouts. But I remember vividly that conversation with him. And I was like, OK, well, things aren't heading in the direction that we would like. We, we should really now be thinking about the medications. And he was like, no, 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 wait, I'm still adamant not to. And when I started unpicking that, he was able to tell me that it was like, actually, I know exactly why my HbA1c is on, in the wrong direction. I've had a really, really tough three months at home. X has happened. Y has happened. And as a result, my diet, my exercise has gone completely out of the window. That's now behind me. I'm now more motivated than ever um, to try some of these diet and lifestyle measures. And um, please, can we give it a go? Please, can I see you again in three months? Again, bit of discomfort, of course, deviating further from the guidelines, discussions with supervisors, etc. But actually, that was it was a, a really good example of a something that's just not accounted for in the guidelines at all. Somebody's had a tough time at home, and this might be the whole underlying reason. Um, but also, b um, a case perfectly exemplifies how sort of someone's circumstances, someone's preference what's happening outside of their health 
that really impacts upon whether we do or don't follow guidelines. Yeah, that's a really good reminder that, you know, there's no kind of one size fits all guideline is all about knowing more about the, the patient in front of you and adapting uh, that guideline. Um, I think it's absolutely that part. It's um, it's your again to commit your role as a clinician to provide those options and the evidence base, the risk and benefits. But at the end of the day, it's a shared decision with you. You you're, you might be the expert in in the clinical um, and the evidence in many circumstances, but you're far from the expert in the patient and their circumstances and what their life looks like outside mm. of your consulting room. And it's about bringing together those two sets of expertise to reach that shared decision. I feel. And I have often verbalised that when I'm obviously I'm extremely junior, but I do explain things to patients, explain what's going to happen, um, go and do their daily reviews, ask them how they're feeling. And, um, you know, I, I, I often say, look, you're the expert in your body and your life and how you're feeling. You you tell me if you're getting better. You know, I'm just looking at your blood tests. They look like they're getting better. But if you're not feeling any better, then, you know, we we need to have an, have another think about what's going on and I've had really good responses to that I used to do a lot of work with kids as well and I did some I was a sort of super first aider at a residential camp and I used to say to them you are the expert in your body tell me what you need um and yeah it's a, it's a really useful phrase I think some people would find that a bit clunky um but I, I find it really useful yeah I think on that note Anna one one thing that's really important to say is that um We've, we've talked a lot this, um, this call about how quite often as the clinician, you are the expert in the room when it comes to the evidence, the risk, the benefit, etc. It's important to note that that's not always the case. So during my time in clinical practice, I've met a number of patients with rare diseases, for example, that in all honesty, I probably had half an hour teaching at medical school five, six, seven years ago. Um, and that's a situation that actually flips um, flips some of what we were talking about almost. And you there as the doctor, you're, you're not the expert in that situation. You've actually sat in front of a patient with a rare disease who spent their whole life with this disease in an age where there's so much information about it available. They will know that inside out, whereas you as the clinician probably won't. And that's quite a different situation that requires a different approach and has its own anxieties and discomfort associated mm. with it but in that situation it's even more important to listen to that patient in front of you I feel. Yeah I totally agree I had a an experience where I went to see a patient very complex patient um had a relative with them who sort of explained um explained lots of things to me and it was a really really useful conversation and at the end I said look, I'm, I'm very junior. Um, you know, a lot more about this con, you, you know, all of this contextual information and, you know, the reason why you've come to hospital, you know, far more about that than I do. Um, so, you know, this is what I think that we should do until you get seen by my senior who I'm going to go and discuss with right now. Um, but how does that fit with, you know, what you were expecting? And the relative actually said to me, thank you. Like, this is this is a true story. They were like, thank you so much for admitting that you didn't know. Because often we come to hospital and people are trying to do things and I'm saying, no, um, you know, we've tried that before and it doesn't work. And I'm, I'm not saying this to like blow my own trumpet. It was I was literally just like, there's so much information here. I don't feel like I've got a handle on any of this. Um, but I think it's important to to understand your limitations even if those are whether those are limitations of a guideline that you then need to bridge onto your 
clinical experience or understanding the the limitations that you have as a clinician because as you say you, you know you we can't know everything about everything um and that links back quite nicely to guidelines because that's part of what what guidelines are supposed to support right um yeah i, I think um your point is really nice there um you know we're we're already moving away from this paternalistic um mode of medicine that we're practicing and kind of doing more of that shared decision making and yeah i suppose kind of towards the end of this podcast um ultimately do you think that's a place for guidelines in clinical practice i'm happy to come in on that one pat i think my personal view is absolutely um guidelines for me as a clinician are incredibly incredibly helpful it's that evidence base on a page that lays out why we um why the guidelines are proposed why that's what we should follow for the majority of patients um the risks and benefits associated with following them etc but it's really really important to to pick up on the point you've just made that shared decision making following number 1 at the top of the guide uh, at the top of the guideline isn't always going to be the best thing for that patient in front of you it's about bringing in that shared decision making which though it might feel uncomfortable um, and though it will certainly require supervision really early in your career is is really really powerful for for the patient for their satisfaction and for their outcomes and I, my feeling is that although it's been a while since I left medical school and I didn't get an awful lot of training on this specifically, my feeling is that's really starting to filter through now into curricula, um, even as a junior doctor as well. And there are lots of really, really good resources for people who are interested in learning more about this. Um, there are um, online resources for shared decision making specifically on the likes of the, the Personalised Care Institute's website that I've personally really benefited from and has really helped me to see why shared decision making is so important in this context. Thank you. And um, I suppose on that note, that's quite a nice place to finish. We are also currently looking for new Sharp Scratch panellists. If you'd like to come on to the show and talk about all things medical students, please visit the show notes and apply via the link. And if you'd like to check out other episodes, please subscribe to Sharp Scratch wherever you get your podcasts, and in two weeks' time you'll be notified of our next episode. While you wait for the next one, do check us out on social media. We are BMJ Student on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Let us know what you think about the podcast using the hashtag SharpScratch. I'd love to hear your ideas what we should cover later in the season. It's also really helpful to us if you can leave a rating and a review on wherever you get your podcasts as it helps other med students to find a show. Until then, it's goodbye from us. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. Bye.